we're presenting using existing healthcare assets to advance social determinants. Presented by Hall Render Attorneys Addison Bradford and Matt Paradiso. Thank you, Julie, and welcome everyone. As Julie mentioned, my name is Addison Bradford, and I'm an attorney at Hall Render within our real estate team. And my practice focuses on assisting healthcare providers with real estate transactions. Today, I'll be moderating a panel discussion uh, with three people. We have Pia Dean, who's the chair of the Board of Directors for Denver Health, Ashley Brand, the System Director for Community and Homeless Health for Common Spirit Health, as well as my colleague, Matt Paradiso, who's within our real estate section at Hall Render. I'll give everybody on the panel a little bit of time to um, introduce themselves a little bit more, but just a few more logistics. Uh, we plan for this webinar to be 45 minutes and it will have a conversational format. We'll, we will try to stick to that 45 minute timeline as best we can. If you have any questions, feel free to um, put them in the question and answer box and we'll be happy to, to the extent we can, weave them into our discussion. The goal of today's webinar is, is threefold. It's one, to help um, our attendees have a better understanding of what social determinants of health are, hear from a couple providers about their existing social determinants of health initiatives, specifically with regards to hospital assets, and then to just hopefully provoke everybody's thinking about how um, hospitals, health systems, and other providers um, and parties in the healthcare industry um, can use their assets to address social determinants of health um, in their communities. Uh, two, quick two quick plugs uh, while I've got your ear. Um, the first is this will be the first in a, a series of webinars that will be hosted by our Hall Render Real Estate section, um, hopefully on a monthly basis, but uh, in the coming spring. Our next one is scheduled for Wednesday, January 27th at 1 uh, p.m. Eastern time, and that will be over the new normal for managing medical office space. And that will specifically focus on what hospitals and other medical office building operators are doing from a facilities perspective to manage medical office space. My colleague, Jill Swider, will moderate the discussion with Julie uh, Cartmichael from Hall Render Advisory Service as a panelist, as well as Mark Tyne, who's the Executive Vice President of Asset Management at Physicians Realty Trust. You know, our real estate section puts out a monthly newsletter um, that's free. So if you'd like to be on that newsletter going forward, feel free to message me or email me after this and we'll happy to get you added up. So uh, with those logistical issues taken care of, I'd like to welcome our panel. So Pia, Ashley, and Matt, um, start with Ashley, we'll go alphabetical. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourselves and your, about you and your involvement with social determinants of health. Thank you, Addison. Uh, good morning and good afternoon, depending on your time zone. My name is Ashley Brand. I am the System Director for Community and Homeless Health for Common Spirit Health. Um, for those who are not familiar, Common Spirit Health was created by the Alignment of Catholic Health Initiatives and Dignity Health as a single ministry in 2019. Um, our commitment to serve the common good is delivered through the dedicated work of thousands of physicians, advanced practice clinicians, um, through clinical excellence delivered across our system of 137 hospitals and more than a thousand care centers serving 21 states. So we have a very broad footprint. Um, I've started my career actually providing direct services to those experiencing homelessness on Skid Row in Los Angeles, California. And I have been in and involved with program management, implementation and evaluation um, for the last 13 plus years with a real focus on serving those experience, experiencing homelessness, but also the larger vulnerable communities as a whole. Um, I've been with Dignity Health for eight years. I started in their community health and outreach 
uh, division or the, for the greater Sacramento area. And with the alignment um, between CHI and Dignity Health, we created a, um, a real focus on addressing housing insecurities and homelessness and creating a system-wide strategy on how we address uh, those social determinants of health focused around housing. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Matt Paradiso, and I'm an attorney in Hall Renders Michigan office. Uh, along with Addison, I'm in the firm's health transactions practice group, and I focus primarily on real estate transactions for hospitals and other healthcare providers across the United States. As it relates to addressing social determinants of health, my involvement in that area includes writing on the topic and observing how health systems are addressing these issues in practice. Um, and hello, my name is Pia Dean. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I am a healthcare attorney who spent uh, the, all of my career at a at a firm in in Denver called uh, Holland and Hart. Um, and during that time, I did an LLM and fell in love in in health law, and fell in love with this concept of medical legal partnerships, which is just simply the idea of adding a pro bono attorney to a fully integrated medical team. Um, and uh, that led to starting a medical legal partnership in Denver. And, and really what a medical legal partnership is intended to do is advance care management or most specifically address social determinants of health. Um, that has led us to, to expand in, in several different ways, including at Denver Health. Um, I'm also the, the chair of the board of Denver Health, uh, which is uh, an anchor institution at the Safety Net Hospital um, and, and a, a large number of uh, FQHCs um, that serve uh, a very, very vulnerable population. Um, and as such, we are constantly looking at how social determinants of health and these social factors uh, affect the health of our patients. Great. Well, thanks, everyone. I appreciate the introductions. Um, just to start off, you know, social determinants of health is certainly a big buzzword these days and can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. So, Matt, uh, I'm going to pitch this to you first because you're my, my colleague here. But when we talk about social determinants of health, what are we talking about? What do we mean? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Addison. Uh, when we're talking about social determinants, we're really talking about the non-medical factors that influence health outcomes. So the World Health Organization defines social determinants of health as the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. And I, I came across a uh, TED talk recently that was on social determinants of health. And it was presented by Randy Ostra, who is the CEO and president of ProMedica. ProMedica is another uh, institution that focuses a lot of efforts on social determinants. And in his TED talk, he, he told this story about a young couple who uh, just learned that they were having their first baby and they went to the hospital to see their doctor for the first time. The ob Jin walks into the office uh, where, where they meet the young couple and he's very concerned. And he says to them, I'm worried about your baby's diagnosis. And the couple kind of confused and startled says, doctor, I don't understand. You know, it's our first time seeing you. We just learned we're having a baby. What do you mean you're concerned? And the doctor responds and says, well, your baby is a 43604. And they say, well, that's our zip code. And he says, exactly. 
So I think that story kind of hits at the heart of it. Um, and studies have shown that one's zip code is a more powerful predictor of health than one's genetic code. It's kind of interesting when you hear it like that, but when you start to think about it, it, it makes sense. It's, you know, a zip code tells where you were born, how you live your life, who your parents were, the social and economic conditions of your life. Um, and social determinants have, research has shown that social determinants account for substantially more of the variation in health outcomes than medical care does. Up to 50% of a person's health and well being is based on social determinants. So, the social and economic factors, physical environment, et cetera, non medical factors, whereas medical care only count, accounts for up to 20% of a person's health and well being. And the remaining 30% is shown to be on health behaviors. Um, some of the big areas of social determinants are housing, so homelessness, quality of housing, affordability neighborhood. Um, others include transportation, food security, employment, and education. Yeah, Matt, that, that's, that's great information um, and good statistics. Uh, in addition to location, are there, or, I mean, outside of population, what populations are, you know, are there different populations of people that are more likely to face health issues arising out of social determinants of health? There are, yes. Um, yeah, several different populations. One um, that comes to mind is home, uh, the homeless population. Um, studies show that those in the homeless population have emergency, or excuse me, rates of emergency department use and inpatient hospitalization at rates that are three to four times higher than those of the average person. Um, in 2017, the average emergency department visit, the cost of such was approximately $1,400, $1, excuse me. So the homeless population, three to four times as much, presumably suggests that this population has uh, three to four times the amount of health issues. Other, other populations, uh, low income, um, why income level shapes one's overall living conditions. Um, it affects psychological functioning, influences health-related behaviors, such as quality of diet, uh, extent of physical activity, tobacco, excessive alcohol use. Uh, research has also shown a direct correlation between income and health. Almost 40% of those households making less than $23,000 a year reported being in poor or fair health. And that's compared with households making more than $48,000 a year. Only 12% reported being in poor or fair health. So there, there is correlation between income and and one's health and well-being. And on the topic of low income, another quite startling statistic that was published by the Journal of the American Medical Association is that uh, the difference in life expectancy between the highest 1% in income and the lowest 1% is about 15 years for men and 10 years for women. And just to give that some context, that's about the same life expectancy as, um, as smoking. So it's startling statistics. Yeah, that is startling. Uh, Pia and Ashley, you guys have, you know, had a hand in this throughout both of your careers thus far. How is, you know, healthcare, the healthcare system's understanding and view of the importance of social determinants changed over the past decade or two? Um, vastly. 
and it really started a lot with um, value-based uh, reimbursement. Uh, when we started realizing uh, how important it was to keep our populations healthier, um, and uh, it, it became a, a major step toward social determinants. For instance, our local or our state Medicaid agency uh, is now funding things like medical legal partnerships. Uh, they're interested in some of these housing efforts that we're putting forth because Medicaid understands that to make um, value-based reimbursement work, uh, you have to do more than just provide care. And as we move away from fee-for-service um, and more into a PM-PM type of system, uh, it, it is in everyone's best interest to address the entire patient and really population health. So there's been a there's been a complete change as 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 I've seen it, um, and it and it was partially the ACA. It was it was a lot of different things, but it's really the understanding that a person's health is, as Matt said, only um, minimally affected by the health care that they're receiving. It really is these other social factors which are going to be determinative. Yeah, and I would just add, I think even from our frontline staff in the hospitals, it's a it's a recognition from them that we can do as much in the clinical setting, but if those community partners and that collaborative approach to addressing a whole person um, is not there, it can be very fragmented. And so I think there's a recognition of understanding the components that um, must be collaborative and part of the continuity of care to support this, support these efforts. And I think um, one thing P and I discussed earlier was, you know, this is an ongoing iteration of work. Um, there's never going to be a point where we have a full understanding because things change so rapidly. COVID-19 is a perfect example where um, nothing's new, but everything has been exacerbated, but the way we approach it has shifted, um, especially around those experiencing homelessness in our communities. So I think um, there's a better understanding, but our approach is going to constantly shift as we continue to improve our collaborative um, efforts to address the needs of the communities we serve. Yeah, and there was there is a uh, a study recently published in the Journal of Health Affairs, and it, uh, that study analyzed in, uh, all new programs involving direct financial investments in social determinants. Uh, by U.S. health systems for a two-year period uh, spanning from January 2017 through November 2019. And that study identified 78 unique programs involving 57 uh, different health systems. So that's about 9.1% of all health systems in the United States. So I think what that tells us is that uh, it's not an overwhelming majority of health systems who are uh, focused in this area yet, but what the study also showed is that uh, those who do focus in this are making significant investments. The study revealed that 2.5 billion of health system funds were invested in social determinant programs. And the study also broke down the specific categories where health system focused, the largest being the housing area, uh, 1.6 billion. Employment was second, 1.1, um, so on and so forth. So. I think the takeaway there is health systems are starting to recognize these issues, and when they do, they they realize how much uh, social determinants really affect someone's 
health and well-being and they're making sizable investments. And Matt, can I just add some? Oh, go ahead, Pia. No, no, well, I'll make this really quick. Um, I spend a lot of time working with young residents um, and medical students, uh, medical school students, and they all, the thinking has changed so much that I now see in this generation that's coming up a group that says, I will not be satisfied until I can write a prescription for food and a prescription for housing. Um, and so that's how much there's been a change in the thinking and and the approach that they want to be able to take with their patients. And I, I was just going to add, I think the um, exciting part of this work is the ability for health systems and a variety of partners to come together and really create system transformation in this work. The more we work together, the more we partner, the more we bring, um, we're engaging with our community partners, uh, engaging with those with lived experiences, the better we're gonna create a solution for a variety of different factors that are falling within social determinants of health. But this is an opportunity. And what excites me is when we bring stakeholders together and we break down, um, some of the competitive nature that we often have to address the community need. Um, we are partnering with Funders Together to End Homelessness to create a, a national health system funders for housing justice, which is exactly that, bringing health systems together to create a shared agenda and priori um, prioritization on how we create an action a focused effort moving forward to address housing insecurities and homelessness. So that it's really exciting in that factor that we're coming together to respond. I agree. Uh, on, on the topic of housing and partners, Ashley, who are the types? Who are the types of partners you traditionally work with, and what makes a good partner in this area? I I think that question um, has so many different answers. Um, we want to partner with everyone. Um, we want to part with other health systems on a national level. We want to partner with other health systems in our local markets. Um, really engaging around housing with the affordable housing developers, um, the community organizations that are providing uh, frontline services, our homeless continuum of care, understanding the mechanism in which the local COC or the continuum of care operates, understanding how coordinated, coordinated entry works um, as we look at chronicity of those experiencing homelessness that are moving into housing versus medical vulnerability of the individuals that we're serving. Um, so I think it's really creating space for everyone to be at the table. Um, trust is a key component of that work. We have to understand and build trust before we can move forward in a collaborative manner. And oftentimes that takes, you know, just meeting <laughs> normally in person, obviously virtually right now and um, breaking down stigmas, breaking down any barriers, creating shared language, oftentimes there's a disconnect between the verbiage we use in healthcare, the verbiage that our homeless service pro providers use and our affordable housing developers. And so coming together with that collected vision and then moving that forward into implementation and operation, I think to me has really been the key in building these collaborative processes, but it's also um, thinking outside the box. What, you know, what opportunities are out there that we haven't thought of and how, again, do we have individuals with lived experiences at the table helping create those solutions? And Ashley, on, on this point, we have, a, we have a question from one of our participants. What are some of the, the legal barriers and challenges to working with your community partners um, and with government 
or, or privately funded social assistance partners? I think um, oftentimes it can uh, start with sharing data. So it's really kind of working through the um, legal components of covered versus non-covered entities in which we share and how we share data um, and working through that workflow. But there hasn't been a time where we haven't been able to overcome that opportunity. I would say with the government side, the challenges is when there's an internal system. So if the counties are running the local continuums of care and there's a local county hospital, trying to figure out how a um, nonprofit hospital can uh, be supportive of that work is, is something that we from Common Spirit Health are still trying to figure out. Um, but I think understanding the workflow, understanding the services that are in place and how individuals are referred to what programs is a good good starting place. But the data sharing and the referral process um, is has been challenges, but I wouldn't say barriers that have create that have um, kept us from moving forward in some of these collaborative processes. On this topic of uh, partnerships, we kind of discussed at a more macro level thus far about social determinants of health. Yeah, I know the um, Denver Health has a housing initiative um, that's been in place for um, a couple of years now. Could you maybe tell us more about that program and how it came to be? Sure. Um, we have a, a relatively large campus. Uh, there was a building um, that we do not need uh, to use. And so we entered into a partnership with the Denver Housing Authority, um, whereby we're redeveloping it, uh, which has been a long process because it's filled with asbestos. So it's taken some time, but um, the goal is to make it into transitional housing um, with specific, uh, specifically for, two floors will be specifically for patients who have past medical necessity who are inpatient at Denver Health but have nowhere to go. And, and, and so the idea is we don't want to return anyone to homelessness. So that will be transitional housing. But that led to other interesting initiatives and ideas. Uh, one of the things that we've been dealing with is the fact that we have a number of our employees, we have 7,500 employees who do not make a living wage. Uh, and we're really doing several initiatives to try to get all of our employees to living wage. And some of that is career pathways and career ladders. Um, but we're also looking at a program that we're gonna work on with Elevate Land Trust and the Gary um, Trust, um, which would allow us to start with 500 families, 250 of which are employees of Denver Health. And um, over a five year period, try to pull them out of poverty and into home ownership. Ultimately, we feel like the goal has got to be home ownership because that's where wealth is built. Um, so that program, it runs along the lines of identifying these 500 families um, and then helping them with a down payment um, and rent assistance uh, where necessary, but even a down payment to buy that we'll then forgive over a period of years. Um, the other, the other major project that we're looking at is another building on the Denver Health campus, uh, which is an old building, but it has good bones. And I think the feeling is that it should be uh, turned into uh, low-cost housing um, to try to deal with homelessness. And Ashley, uh, I know we when we talked on our initial call, I, I know we talked to 
Commons Spirit's taken a, a, a similar approach with, with the Housing with Dignity program, although it's uh, not using an existing asset, but an asset of a third party. Can you tell us about that program? Yeah, so our Housing with Dignity program um, developed in 2014 in partnership with Lutheran Social Services. And it really focuses and aims to assist homeless individuals with severe chronic health and mental health issues, obtain and retain housing, care and services designed to achieve stability in their lives. Um, the process is that through our hospital case managers, um, we work directly with Luther Lutheran Social Services staff to identify participants who will be housed in supportive stabilization apartments and receive intensive case management and supportive services. Um, these are individual apartments that are master leased by Lutheran Social Services. Purpose of the program is to provide up to six months of transitional supported housing to homeless uh, to individuals experiencing homelessness um, and resulting in reduced hospitalization. Uh, identification of permanent supportive housing um, and or independent housing for the individuals. And the, um, it really is a collaborative process recognizing many of our programs were focused more on a um, shorter period of time, 30 to 45 days. And unfortunately, there's been a decrease in funding for transitional housing, but some of these individuals needed a little bit length, a longer length of time to get stabilized if they um, needed behavioral health services, including substance use services. Um, this is a low barrier program um, for individuals who are, um, you know, interested in moving into housing. Um, we've this program has been expanded in 2016. We started with five ap apartments and expanded to 15. And the recognition um, is that through our partners that are able to work through the processes, I get identification if they don't have it, uh, work on income, um, help with obtaining uh, coverage if they don't have it already or linkage to a primary care provider. And during that time, also getting them ready to move into a more um, permanent solution. What's unique about this program is because they are master leased apartments, oftentimes an individual can move from our program, Housing with Dignity, into their own permanent housing with actually, without actually moving in an apartment. So we can use that apartment and transition them into multiple programs, which allows them to create consistency. But it's also a program where um, we meet the individuals where they're at. A story I often share is one of the individuals that was referred to the program. Um, I believe it was about two or three weeks that they slept on the porch outside because they weren't comfortable uh, sleeping inside. But in um, but it was also about meeting them where they're at and developing that safety that comfortability of, of moving inside. And eventually they did, but we want to allow the individual to move at their own pace. Um, this is really focused on establishing individual goals led by the individual we're serving. And so they're developing what their priorities are and we're moving with them. And I think as a health system, um, this is really where it, collaboration is so critical of finding those community partners who are able to engage with the individuals and the participants in the program, understand their needs and help work through that process together. It's, um, it's been a great program. The reality is individuals are very ill. So um, we do see a decrease in hospital inpatient and length of stay, but we also recognize that as they find housing, 
some of their illnesses actually tend to exacerbate because they're not in this flight or fight mode anymore. And now they're addressing these long-term chronic illnesses that they hadn't been able to address early on. But for them to have a roof over their head, have a safe place to receive services and a plan to move in permanent supportive housing has been really successful. Uh, We've talked about kind of uh, creating these opportunities, but I imagine it's also difficult um, identifying the populations that um, are are served by these housing opportunities. I think it's probably difficult to ask somebody necessarily about their living situation as it could be a very sensitive, you know, conversation with the patient. Um, Ashley and Pia, how how has Denver Health and Common Spirit worked to identify uh, patients and other people with, within your um, communities that would be served by this? That's a really critical piece. I think that that every health system should be doing a social um, questionnaire, uh, if you will, that's, by, you know, there's ICD-10 codes now for homelessness. There, it's available in EPIC, it's available in e-clinical e- e- works. Um, there, there has to be a a screening upfront for social risk factors. And it's no different than checking for whether people smoke or consume too much alcohol or have a gun in the house. It it becomes as important to say um, identifying food insecurity and housing insecurity. So uh, we're not finding it hard to to identify these people. Um, We're not. Um, And we're using a mobile van to go out and work with people who are living in the homeless community um, outdoors. Uh, and so that's another way to identify uh, folks. So we're not finding it as hard to identify who needs help. Um, it's just a matter of providing all the help that's needed. Yeah, and the only thing I would add to that, we are working um, as we have aligned and have a um, large footprint, make, uh, creating consistency around those types of screenings. I think, um, It is a sensitive topic that some people don't feel comfortable sharing. So I think one of the challenges that we have is they might not disclose that they're experiencing homelessness up front, but throughout um, their time in the hospital, either in the ED or in patient setting, um, it does come out that maybe they're couch surfing or they're living in their car. But I think them recognizing um, what homelessness includes is something that we wanna both educate our clinical teams that are asking these types of questions, but also empowering the individuals that it's a safe place for them to share um, some of the challenges that they're experiencing. I think the one thing that we are really interested in doing a better job is around housing insecurities, um, because we're oftentimes not asking, are you behind on your rent? And I think if we are you know, really looking at this work, Addressing both the homelessness side and the housing insecurity side is really critical. Otherwise, we're going to see the inflow into homelessness just as much as we're contributing to those moving out of homelessness. And so I think having both sides is going to be extremely important. How are a lot of these projects funded? And it looks like we have a question from our audience. What type specifically, what type of government assistance is available for these programs? Pia, you want to go with the government one? <laughs> sure, I'd be glad to. I didn't. I didn't want to keep interrupting you, Ashley. I'm sorry. Oh no. Um, we're we're finding that um, the government is is getting easier and easier to deal with, as I mentioned before, especially Medicaid agencies. Now, there's of course limitations, um, but there really is an understanding that 
uh, these social risk factors um, play a very important part in health. And one of the things that is important is to be able to measure um, both objectively and subjectively how people are doing with uh, increased interventions. And that we've been able to pull that data together in a way that we've been able to say to our, our state Medicaid agency, um, we can reduce the number of ED visits. We can reduce the number of days in hospital. We can reduce the number of missed appointments. We can reduce the number of uh, days of missed work. Um, not only that, but, but people report feeling better, being more compliant with medications, um, and being able to um, uh, look for ways to sustain themselves in a, in a more effective way. So um, I think that the governmental funders are becoming much more interested um, in, in doing this. I think starting with state Medicaid agencies is really important, but I know our own legislature is interested in finding ways to fund things like medical legal partnerships. They've opened an office of um, uh, public guardianship, which is, which is huge and, and, and can be very, very helpful. Um, so it, it, it's getting easier. There are some legal barriers to all of these kinds of issues, but I think that the governmental um, involvement is is becoming easier to, to accomplish. Yeah, and I think a lot of our partners are receiving government assistance. Um, and from Common Spirit, it's it's kind of how do we fill some of those gaps in in terms of funding? Uh, we do have grant funds, um, smaller amount that we do provide around um, housing. Um, one model that we're looking at in a rural community in California is scattered site permanent housing. So partnering with a small uh, affordable housing developer where they're actually purchasing homes, um, remodeling them, and then creating shared housing in which housing choice vouchers can be used. And we're providing the funding to purchase the house. And then um, the housing choice vouchers are able to support the operating cost on that. Um, we also have social innovation grants. But one of the main things that we've had historically and since 1990s, our community investment program, um, and it uh, provides below market interest rate loans to organizations to improve the health and quality of life in their communities. Um, th this includes uh, resources to organizations that support projects of housing, access to jobs, food and education, and healthcare for people of low-income communities and helping the most vulnerable. Um, they have a, right now the portfolio to, is to support over 114 community investments and 665, uh, 165 to 170 million um, in approved loans. Um, and around housing um, in fiscal year 20, they've approved 12 loans for a total of 27.7 million, um, leveraging 101 million in funding and supporting the development of 368 affordable housing units. And those community investment loans oftentimes are in collaboration with government funds that are coming and other investors at the table. So I think we're trying to pull really all the different resources we have, but it's also, again, going back to the partnership with other health systems is how do we leverage leverage our collective resources to invest in the community. Yeah, you, you mentioned some interesting analytics about um, days missed from work. What, what other measurements do we have for kind of measuring the effectiveness of these programs and for any, um, any, any healthcare providers that are looking at potentially in, implementing social determinants, of, social determinants of health initiatives, are there realistic goals um, that they can set based off those metrics? I think that there are uh, realistic goals. So now we're out of sort of my expertise, um, but I work with 
epidemiologists on this and um they're so they use all validated measures and whether it's burfus or um you know short form uh the sp9 or or six um there are there are multiple validated measures um that we can use one of the things that we're experimenting with and starting to play with is uh, this idea of of looking at the number of kids with an EAP. Um, um, yeah, I, there's there's lots of different metrics, um, and I think, but I think that is the key is to keep measuring what you are doing and what you're trying to put forward, uh, so that we have ideas about effectiveness. Yeah, and I would just add, I think the evaluation piece, understanding it and defining success up front is such a critical component of it. What type of measurements do you want to see improve or do you want to measure over time to determine if a program is successful or not? I think from a housing perspective, if we're looking at referrals from health systems, you know, there's kind of two components of it. There's the internal component of utilization. So doing a pre and post survey um, of, you know, either six months to a year around hospital admissions, length of stay, ED visits, and, and understanding the pre and post of that. And like I mentioned, it, it is important to understand that sometimes you actually see an increase in utilization, but it's more appropriate utilization and it's less, uh, shorter length of stay because they do have a place to reside, to come back to. Um, but also from a community perspective and what we really look at and partner in, with our organizations is what type of information is important to collect to show the community impact. Looking at overall impact around law enforcement, other types of uh, services that they may have been util utilizing but no, no longer need once they're permanently housed, um, linkages and successful appointments with their primary care providers, uh, follow up with behavioral health, follow up with any type of legal services required, um, ensuring that they're uh, completing their applications for any type of benefits they may be eligible for, but and then the linkage to any other resources. So I think we want to look at both sides uh, when we identify these programs. But that's that's more focused on housing. I think, as Pia mentioned, you know, there's a lot of different metrics to measure, but you really have to understand that upfront. Otherwise, trying to do it on the back end, um, I think, what is what cause causes a lot of programs not to maintain funding because they haven't thought through that process. Agreed. So we're, we're, we're getting close to our time here. So I want to uh, make sure uh, ask this question to you all. Um, Denver Health and Common Spirit certainly are, you know, I, I would consider leaders in this area and I'm not just saying that, but what would you say to a, a hospital or a health system that desires to develop or structure um, an initiative or program to address social determinants of health? What, what advice would you give them? Well, it's, it's interesting because a question just came up about the hospital community health needs assessments. And I think that's a great place to start. Um, identifying the needs in the community is assuming that you really take a proactive uh, community participation approach of, get, of those focus groups and engaging the community in identifying your priorities within your community health needs assessment. But I think that's a you know first place to approach. Um, it identifies the priorities that maybe your community members have, have already identified. I think it's having these conversations with community organizations of what resources exist and where there's gaps in services. 
I think it's really important not to go in with, this is a solution we're going to create because oftentimes you're the duplicating or you're fragmenting the local continuum of care. So taking the time to understand the needs and then building the partnerships um, so that the workflow makes sense. You can see the seamless transitions of care from one resource to another for the population you're serving. Um, and I think it's okay to start small. Every health system has a different portfolio of investments and in what that looks like, but starting small and building that understanding, building that business case, engaging leadership and engaging your clinical teams, I think are all part of that process to create a sustainable program that's integrated within the culture of the organization. I agree completely. Um, the health needs assessment is a great place to start to understand what's going on in your community. And then figuring out what's out there and who you need to be talking to is, is key. And then creating those relationships. Ashley mentioned trust earlier. Um, it is a matter of building um, trust amongst the different community members and an understanding of, of who is doing what and how we can build on what each other is doing. Um, and I, and I would urge any system, if they say we can't go straight into housing, transitional housing or something else, to start where they can't, um, working with food banks, um, working with entities that can help people get all of the benefits that they are entitled to, which they often are not getting. Uh, how many times we hear people say, you know, I, I'm not getting um, my SNAP benefits because X, Y, or Z. And so trying to make... I try to attack housing and homelessness in a, in a number of different ways. In Colorado, we have very poor housing laws. So somebody may come and say, my housing is, is inadequate or substandard. And the concept is, can we work around it other ways? Can we find a way to improve their uh, income uh, basics, base, basis? Um, can we work with a, a program to get them a job. There's a wonderful agency here called Activate, which uh, basically helps people get jobs and then works with them for a year. And, and so I would say to a hospital, find an entity like that and agree to hire 50 people from an entity like that in your own institution. Um, the Activate group here, 58% of the people who are now employed uh, have experienced homelessness within the last year. So there's lots of different approaches to sort of work the problem. And uh, it is it is wherever you feel comfortable starting, but, but I would encourage everyone to go ahead and start. Um, small, medium, um, you've got to start somewhere and uh, uh, it makes a huge difference. And then once you start realizing uh, what the partnerships can bring, um, it just expands on itself. Well, great. Uh, thank you, everyone. We're, we're buttoned up against our time. We appreciate uh, your time and certainly the, the conversation has been enlightening from my standpoint. Um, just for everyone who's listening, uh, an uh, audio of this webinar will be available um, in the coming weeks that will be shareable in public. So uh, if there's any information you need uh, from there, it'll be available. Also, if you have any questions about any of the um, items discussed herein, or I uh, just want to have a dialogue about some of that, those conversations, feel free to contact us. Um, with that in mind, I'll kick it back to Julie to wrap us up. Thanks, Addison. Um, thanks to all of our speakers, actually, for today's webinar. It was really insightful. Um, if you're interested in learning any more about any of the topics discussed today, please reach out to any of the speakers. You should see their contact information on the screen here or visit our website at anytime, hallrender.com.